What's up, everyone? You're listening to the Anthro Alert podcast, which is the recording of our live show, Anthro Alert. You can now listen at your leisure and at your convenience. If you're new here on Anthro Alert, this is where Renee and I, your hosts, and sometimes our guests, analyze, break down, and discuss different topics each week anthropologically. Enjoy. And welcome to Anthro Alert on Bulls Radio, WUSF 89.7 HD3, Tampa, 1620 AM on campus, and streaming worldwide, live and on the scene 24-7 at TuneIn.com and on the TuneIn app. Uh, you know, Learn more about uh, this show and other shows at BullsRadio.org. Check us out on AnthroAlert.com, on Twitter, on Facebook, uh, in, a, in a whole lot of different places. So this show is about anthropology and why it matters each week. We discuss how anthropology is relevant, and over time, we feature various guests from the Department of Anthropology here at the University of South Florida to discuss their research and have them weigh in on everyday topics uh, or current events to discuss their research. We believe this show is a good opportunity for us as anthropologists uh, to better connect with the USF community and raise awareness of the value of an anthropological perspective. We like to preface, very importantly, we like to preface each of our shows with a disclaimer that the statements that we make and the opinions that we express here on Anthro Alert are our own opinions and may not necessarily be representative of anthropology as a discipline, USF Anthropology Department, University of South Florida, or uh, USF Student Government, or anything else, really. Yep. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, just, it's just my opinion in, the, in a wide world of random. Yeah. Uh, but, but my name is Renee, and I'm uh, co-hosting here, and... Hey, I'm Spencer. How's it going? Uh, assisting us in the studio today, we have Alex. And um, our guest on this hour of Anthro Alert is Dr. Daniel Lindy, so a professor here at the University of South Florida. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you for, for being on our show today. I'm excited. We, we've, we have waited many, many months. We have. For the elusive Daniel Lindy to come <laughs> on. This <laughs> is so, so busy. And join so, us here on Anthro Alert. Semester's well, done. Well, I think one, <laughs> of the, one of the things also is that when we started the show, you were on sabbatical oh, last yeah. spring. That's yeah, right. Spring. You were working on your book, right? I was. Okay. Understanding addiction. Hmm. Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> so I hope you understood it. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the test, right? Um, okay, so let's let's just dive right in. What is uh, you know what is the primary focus of of your research? Really, it has been addiction since. Uh, since I went to grad school, uh, I worked uh, first as a counselor to kids that had drug problems in Colombia for three years, um, and and that led me to understand that I've been an under anthropology undergrad to see that anthropology had something to offer to understanding addiction as a problem, uh, and so when I went to grad school, it was really to to try to build an anthropological approach to addiction, and so I've been working on that uh, since nineteen. 96, which is when I started grad school. And uh, one of the things that I really tried to do is to say, well, to say two things. One, uh, to to bring a holistic approach that has long characterized U.S. anthropology to, to understanding health problems. Uh, and to then also argue that what that anthropology, not to seed ground other disciplines, that anthropology can understand addiction directly, not just comment on cultural discourses about it or 
um, critique uh, genetic approaches to it, but rather that the combination of theory and ethnography uh, really adds a dimension to getting at what addiction looks like out in the real world. And um, so as you started to, to research this um, as a graduate student, what, what have you kind of found about the anthropology of, of addiction? I think the, the main thing is, is that uh, ethnography is a wonderful tool for empirical research mm. uh, and that that gets us closer to the reality of lots of health problems. Um, so mm-hmm. I often characterize myself as a medical anthropologist, certainly here at USF. That's how I'm seen. Uh, so the ethnographic approach that, you know, sort of that experience near or real-world observations and uh, understandings offer a range of ways to then interpret that data. So in, in my case, a lot of it dated back to some of the work I did as a counselor and kids that uh, I worked with who told me things about what it was like to go through withdrawal or to cope with um, cravings or things like that that uh, that weren't well reflected in the literature at the time or still even to this day. And, and to say, well, how can I then try to explain what they're saying to take them at face value and either find theories that match it or build new theories? Hmm. And when we're talking about ad- addiction, I feel like sometimes it's a controversial topic or can be made in, into a controversial topic. And so do you think there's some common misconceptions about addiction or, or treating addiction that, that your research addresses or that the anthropology of addiction addresses? Certainly it's a very contested area. Um, I guess I, th- I would start with just saying that there's so many people who suffer um, directly from it or their families. Uh, I've had that happen in my own life. And, um, and, and to have then approaches that will match up to the, the societal impact are, is an important area. So, um, and that's where some of the misconceptions come in. So on the one hand, particularly here in the United States, there is a, you know, a biological determinist view of addiction mm-hmm. um, that it's you know can be all boiled down to genes, to the pharmacological effects of drugs, and to you know, hardwired brain circuits that have gone uh, bad because of using drugs. Mm-hmm. And that's just it's what that actually is is a cultural model of explaining addiction, mm-hmm. uh, a biological determinist model. Um, it doesn't reflect the reality of the biology of addiction. And biological anthropology and anthropology gave me a lot of tools to understand that, uh, gave me the tools to look at human variation, to, to think about uh, how genes work with a developing organism uh, in conjunction with environments rather than just sort of boil it all back down to you know, causal effects of genes or drugs. Hmm. It's, you've, already, you've already previously mentioned ethnography as a tool that you've been using to understand addiction and kind of um, growing the anthropology of addiction. But does anthropology, particularly as a discipline, does it provide a good framework to ask these types of questions, maybe uh, theoretically as well as methodologically when looking at addiction? So I'd say there there are two important, well, really three, but um, primarily in the literature there have been two important ways in anthropology to look at it. And one is the classic sociocultural approach. Um, 
which has done wonderful things such as question that it's all due to, say, a disease um, and really shown how sociocultural environments, inequality, really shape who becomes, uh, who abuses drugs and who doesn't. And I'm thinking here of work by uh, Philippe Bourgeois and other people, uh, as well as critical work that sort of says, you know, these ideologies we have about addiction are, are often useful for treatment professionals to maintain their jobs, and, uh, but don't always necessarily do the best by the people who are actually suffering from the problem. So I strongly support a critical and sociocultural approach. But in my own work, I think I've taken more uh, the classic holistic approach, which would go back to Boaz, and then my graduate program was a biocultural program. And in, in that case, I, was, I think what I've tried to do is a little bit different from most biocultural folks as well as most ethnographic-oriented uh, researchers where I see the ethnography uh, as offering multiple interpretations, not just sociocultural interpretations. So you can use the ethnography and see does it match up to neuroscience theories. You can use the ethnography and see if it matches up uh, to what we know about how pharmacological effects work. Um, kids talked a lot about that. They went through it, um, but they managed it in different ways um, than, than you might see based on the literature. So uh, so I, I really want the ethnography to be biocultural um, rather than just sociocultural. And mm -hmm. I think you can view it in both lenses, but I've definitely emphasized um, approaching ethnography uh, as a key part to doing biocultural research, and I think that makes me different from a lot of other biocultural researchers out there. Can you talk more about um, specifically your work in, in Colombia a little bit? Yeah. So uh, so I lived there for three years, and, and that gave me a grounding in understanding Colombia and understanding kids' lives. Um, and... And that was really important because um, the, I realized that I had to do certain things that weren't intuitively obvious, that I had made mistakes along the way. So, for example, I was in charge at the treatment center of uh, trying to get a hand on risk factors that were in the clinical files. And, and they thought that would be a good way to try to really understand how they could target particular risk factors that might be linked to worse outcomes. Uh, but what I discovered was all of these kids had just so many risk factors that there was really no way for me to figure out what what was worse or not. Um, there were a few things that stood out, but nonetheless, there's just so much risk that I couldn't have, have comparison points. So when I went back to do my doctoral research, a very specific that I wanted to also find kids who were at risk but didn't have problems because that would help me tease out what was actually, you know, pushing them to use drugs as well as pushing them away from using drugs, which is also something I looked at um, in my doctoral research. So so I, I went back to Columbia repeated times. The first time was sort of your classic one-year stint to do work there, and then I went back for another summer, uh, and then I also went back again and set up a field site in a different city to test what I learned in the first city. Um, so it's just 
sort of repeated empirical exposures to trying to see, you know, what was I learning and how how a comparative approach both within a city and then between cities really helped me nail down my conclusions. What were what were some of your conclusions? Did you end up uh, were you able to start teasing teasing apart some of the risk factors that pushed people into drugs versus people or you know kids that didn't end up uh, using any drugs? Yeah. So um, you know, based on the the risk factor research, particularly at the treatment center, it was really clear that that three things, and my subsequent research backed this up. Three things really make people more disposed to using um, and abusing drugs, and uh, you know, one was any kind of traumatic experiences, you'd call them today, adverse childhood experiences. Um, so things that happened to them before age 10 uh, that then just made life really tough on them. Um, they could bounce back some of them from that, but, but those really had an impact on their lives. Uh, generally, worse outcomes were linked also to um, kids who started earlier. So uh, if they started when they were really young, say 10 or 12, that was not good. Um, and then the final piece is something, you know, would be a little bit related to sort of structural inequalities, but uh, we talk about, but is more, I would see more how you experience that. So in this case, there are various factors such as, um, you know, both in my ethnography and the epidemiological risk factor research I did, where um, time on the street was really linked to really bad outcomes, but not every kid had time on the street. So a better risk factor in my epidemiological work was something called experiencing violence. And the reason I think that came out is because the way they rated it didn't put it now or earlier, and so they could talk about any violence they'd ever experienced. And so that sort of captured this global exposure um, to to really bad circumstances at that particular moment in time, as well as involvement in types of environments where those things would happen. Uh, and then, you know, a final factor, which is known from lots of research, not just my own, is if if your friends use, you're more likely to use. Um, and your social relationships change as you become more involved. Um, this not out of my own research, but other research shows pretty clearly that you know, as you become involved, both you start to see, search out new types of friends, um, and those friends then have a reciprocal influence back on you to sort of push you further into use. And my epidemiological work wasn't designed to do that, but certainly you could see that in the ethnographic work when I talked about how they became involved with drugs. I talked about you know, leaving certain types of friends behind and searching out new friends or going to you know, be in places where they thought they could get drugs and scared of the people, but they still had to be around these types of people. Did you find so that you have kind of a multivariate model there with these four factors? Was one reliant on the other? Like, would you would someone who had friends do drugs even if they didn't have any of the other things? Is that enough of a driver? You think, or does it? Yes. So, so there there are cases. So, there's one other factor which I haven't talked about. So, um, which which was you know really came out of my biocultural approach, and this is um, came really out of Colombia. Um, so. So I'm going to have to back up for a second sort of to get to that other factor that's part of it, and this is, leads into neuroanthropology and things like that. So when I worked there and then when I went back to do research there, the way Colombians talk about addiction is very different from the way it's talked about in the United States. Uh, so in Colombia, one of the ways they, they, they characterize addiction is to say, querer más y más, to want more and more. 
and 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 that idea of wanting more and more is what's most typical of addiction is not really the way we think about it here but sort of fit in with other things in Colombia where lots of things were called vices that could catch a hold of you but one of the worst of those are drugs, which really can catch a hold of you. In fact, drugs are often called vicio, vice. Uh, and so this wanting more and more really referenced when I did you know, ethnographic work with going into sort of really bad consequences. They'd want more and more. They'd, they'd, they'd repeat. They'd do more and more. And, and it's a little different from craving. Craving is sort of about before, and there we're talking mm. about wanting more and more in the moment. And um, and so when I was in grad school, I started looking at the neuroscience of addiction, and I came across an approach to understanding what the main neurotransmitter linked to addiction, which is dopamine, does. Um, and dopamine is often mischaracterized as the pleasure neurotransmitter. Um, but really what dopamine does is more sort of mediate your engagement in things. And uh, so, for example... Uh, if you work with animal models and you take out dopamine, the animal won't work as hard to get to a goal, right? Mm. Um, and so what these researchers did, Robinson and Barrage, um, in their original article in 1993, was to, to do really sophisticated animal model research where they're trying to tease these things out. And they said... Uh, that what dopamine mediates in the brain is something called incentive salience. So what that, it literally means what it says. So it's very, it's not a good, it doesn't roll off your lips, <laughs> incentive salience. But it, rather than rewards, like something, the pleasure you get from eating something, dopamine is about the incentives that take you towards things, right? And what it does is make them salient to your attention, right? So you pay attention to them sometimes consciously, but oftentimes through unconscious processes, right? So you suddenly start late at night thinking, oh, pizza would sound really good right now, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, I kind of think about pizza. And, um, and the way Robinson and Barrage glossed what incentive salience would feel like was wanting. Mm. And so suddenly there's this really interesting correspondence between what my informants were saying in Colombia and what this major neuroscience theory is saying about the main neurotransmitter. Mm. Uh, but they'd only done rat research. And so what I did uh, was to design a scale to test uh, incentive salience and whether incentive salience was then linked to addiction in my sample as well as doing the ethnographic work. And um, So that was, in fact, the third. You can sort of boil it down to three factors. One was the friends part social environments kind of thing. The other was the violence or delinquency or these sort of more risk factors. And then the third factor, and the best predictor really was um, the incentive salience piece. Hmm. Um, and so you could have kids that don't have risky friends and come from pretty good lives, but for whatever reason, if they get involved and start to use in ways that uh, drug seeking and taking becomes more and more compelling to them. They could have problems even if they have a pretty good life. Mm -hmm. hmm. Hmm. That's really interesting. I don't know much about addiction, so I mean, this is this is really interesting to hear about. I I know that I'm addicted to pizza because <laughs> now that he said it, yeah, pizza sounds good. Well, that's all also, the time. Yeah, I often explain the, this to to students because it's hard to get, and it's yeah. like, whoa, well, the undergrads. If you're mm -hmm. late at night 
and you start craving that pizza and you can't stop thinking about the 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 kids I talk to often report really similar things like it's t- counting down the clock's counting down to the end of school and they start thinking more and more and more about you know how they're going to get drugs and where they're going to use them and they start sort of planning out and um so is there dopamine being released at that point that's that a, that's, that's a very difficult question to answer okay. um and so I, to, I mean, to back up, it's probably a cascade of things happening among them mm. would be dopamine. Um, so what I think happens is that dopamine, just as it works in really different ways throughout our day f- for anything, works in different ways for different pieces of sort of what we call addiction. So, yeah, I, I do think at that particular point it's, it's shaping the salience of attentional cues and you thinking about it. But later, it'll shape the effort that you put in to go get it. Um, and then finally, when they're using, it'll shape that wanting more and more, which will really drive a lot of excess. Um, and that's that's actually different from what the neurological theory says, where they just sort of combined wanting to sort of the moments before. But what the my informants talked about was the wanting more and more in the moment and that linked that to going to much more excess than if they just had it and just checked out because that's because that is the the model of the one on the street if you were going out is the dopamine is associated with pleasure and that that is kind of the end point that that is mm-hmm. like um you're satisfied once you get that and you're saying that no once you get that salience that that's actually what sets you on the path for just wanting more of that activity yeah hmm. and and so it, so it's not really I wouldn't want to like put it all in dopamine to sort of make dopamine okay. to the bad guy per se. Yeah. Um, um, but but it's it definitely is play in 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 mammals it plays this role of mediating engagement and mm-hmm. approach behavior, mm-hmm. and that can apply to wanting more and more in my mind. Okay. I think we're going to stop there. We're going to take a short break, and then we will be back to talk to Dr. Lindy about his research. Welcome back here to Anthro Alert on Bulls Radio, WUSF 89.7, HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus and streaming worldwide at TuneIn.com and on the TuneIn app. app is available for you on your phone, on whichever type of phone you may have, probably except for a Windows phone. Just, uh, I don't know many apps that fit on that one. Oh. <laughs> or or uh, or non-app phones, so good old dumb phones. But uh, learn more at bullsradio.org on a uh, internet-enabled device. There you go. <laughs> Thank you for that very specific intro. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, we've been talking with um, a professor here at University of South Florida, Dr. Daniel Lendy, telling us a little bit about the the process, the the history of getting into kind of kind of introducing us to neuroanthropology with some of the uh, research that he'd done in terms of uh, addiction and, and, and such. And now uh, and now we're going to actually learn a little bit more about what neuroanthropology is and and how and why it's important. Right. right. So I'll start with a nutshell definition. This is what it says. It's neuroanthropology, so it's anthropology integrated with neuroscience and cognitive science. Um, but in terms of the history of it, you know, as I said earlier, I went to this biocultural program for graduate school, and so my original publications I called them biocultural 
even though at that point I was really working with the neuroscience, working ethnography, doing something a little different from what most biocultural people at my program did. And uh, and then at my first job, I was an assistant professor at Notre Dame, and uh, right in the office next to me was uh, Greg Downey, and Greg and I have together really tried to, you know, played a leadership role in getting this idea of neuroanthropology out there and sort of developing some of the uh, theoretical and empirical approaches um, that we call neuroanthropology. Uh, but it really started as conversations in the hallway, just talking about different ideas, uh, and we were a good match. Uh, I was um, an anthropologist coming largely from a biological anthropology background who was more and more interested in cultural theory and ethnography. He was a classically trained cultural anthropologist, becoming more and more interested in phenomenolo phenomenology and cognitive science to understand some of the things that came up in his field site, for example, how balance works. Um, and it might have all just stayed at conversations uh, in the hallway, uh, but Greg moved to Australia and uh, to take up a job at Macquarie University. And so suddenly we were faced with the dilemma of how to keep having the types of conversations we so enjoyed in the hallway. So Greg uh, actually proposed doing a blog. And this was back um, in the AAA meetings of 2007. And shortly after that, and we decided to call it neuroanthropology because it fit um, what we were talking about. And we just started blogging as a way to exchange ideas um, since we were on different continents at that point. And, and to sort of try to gather together our thoughts in a, a more informal but nonetheless out there way rather than just trying to push it to publication immediately. Um, and so we just started going back and forth and posting um, on whatever struck us as neuroanthropology. And that blog really uh, rapidly grew um, in its reach and uh, but also pushed us to understand, you know, how each of us thought, and after a few years, you know, we, and we joked still to this day. At this point, we don't know where some of our ideas started. If it was him or it was me, it's just it's us, right? It's mm -hmm. us because we've it's been like doing it. McCartney. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Who wrote it. Uh, so, uh, so interestingly enough, in the case of anthropology, the blog was one of the, the crucial ways by which we started to, to to do this type of work. The other important thing about the blog was. Uh, was similarly, it, it besides us having a conversation with ourselves, we started having people come in and want to have conversations with us or comment. And these included clinical uh, folks. It included neuroscientists themselves, philosophers. And that actually was really, I think, important for us to make it into something more that would reach out to these various ideas um, about neuroscience and cognitive science and to try to build anthropology that would be more interdisciplinary. Uh, rather than just sort of drawing, say, on a, a narrow line of, you know, phenomenological work or cognitive anthropology, uh, which exists within, within anthropology, we were exposed to and having to contend with these much broader questions from, uh, from both ordinary people with, you know, concerns about stuff, uh, but also um, professors in other fields. So I think that was really crucial for us. Um, and then we did things like have conference uh, meetings, then we had a standalone conference, um, and then finally uh, producing some publications. 
No, the 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 blog. So this was um, it was like who was the market? Who was the target audience for that? What was there? Was there one, or was <laughs> it, or, or was it just like an yeah, effort in, you, in collaboration? He was looking at me and like my blank face. <laughs> yeah, we didn't start with a target audience. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. We just started, like I said, to, to to just put it out there and see who would come. Um, and then I, I I certainly became interested in who was coming, and uh, and that was interesting because I obviously it was mostly people who had you know some sort of higher education. Uh, but it could be really varied, um, and it could be uh, people looking for information on specific topics. It could be people interested in push more, you know, more science types or pushing their own ideas about how to do this interdisciplinary work. So, different different posts could meet different audiences is something that I learned. And over time, I really tried to mix up, you know, ones that be might be more meant for quick consumption or commentary on stuff that was going on right at the moment versus more substantive pieces that might be something targeted just to Greg or targeted to smaller groups of people. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the wonderful things about blogs, uh, particularly at that point, was you know you could do lots of different things. So each post could go in a different way for a different audience. Mm-hmm. So in, in, in a way, this is like a practice of, of public anthropology, I guess, right? Yeah, I would call it that today. Yeah. Okay. So how how were I guess your like when you started the blogs and you started to have comments from individuals from other disciplines, how was how was it received overall? Like what kind of questions were they having? Like were they you know, what what were their thoughts about what you guys were doing? You know, probably some of the most positive stuff for us was when other established bloggers who came from sort of a science writing background would you know, promote our stuff and encourage us. So, you know, for example, Ma, uh, Vaughn Bell of Mind Hacks was someone who was really encouraging mm-hmm. to us early on. Um, you know, some uh, some science journalists like David Dobbs, um, and so those are the those are the types of things that encouraged us to keep going, particularly at the beginning, uh, and then. You know, as things went on and you you gain a public voice, people actually start to reach out to you to talk about specific topics that they don't see getting enough attention. Um, and in, in one case, there was, you know, we've explicitly done through that blog to try to take on some of the ideas, um, the biological determinist ideas about you know sex and gender and race and things like that. Um, and so some listeners would, would reach out to us and say, could you comment on such and such? Or, mm-hmm. um, and, um, and we would do that. So it, it, it became more and more this kind of interactive form, um, uh, both with people who are doing it but people who wanted to see us write about specific things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so in that sense, it sort of transcended what we – what you know normally we see as blogs day, which is sort of a way to promote your research, mm. um, it really became for me a form of public discourse mm. uh, and uh, something that universities should actually do more of to, to yeah. get you know their professors out there um, representing you know really high quality ideas. Um, yeah, mm. here at AnthroAlert, we agree and fully support the idea of uh, public <laughs> public <laughs> stuff. So. Yeah, yeah. So it was. Are you guys still blogging? No, no. Yeah, so okay. um, 
you know, I would say I was I was the one who did a lot of the posts, and um, Greg writes massive long posts, which lots of people love. Um, but sort of, I would do more the day to day or week to week stuff. And at a certain point, uh, it came down to me recognizing that, you know, I could either write this popular book on addiction, which I've been doing for a long time, or I could spend my time continuing to write on the blog. I couldn't. I just didn't have enough time to do both, or I didn't have enough writing sort of mojo each day mm. to, to, to do yeah. that. So if I, if I spent it, you know, crafting a great blog post, I couldn't, I, I thought I could, but I learned I couldn't come back and then work on, on you know, also trying to do a, a form of engaging writing for, yeah. for my book on addiction. Mm. Um, and uh, so it, it just became something where... Um, I, I, I started to tone it back just because I had a range of professional goals and um, but I could have seen yeah I could have seen myself making a career just doing that if I hadn't um, also wanted to do some other stuff mm-hmm. I mean you could pick up like a, a, a lowly graduate student having the ghost write for you right yeah, I, <laughs> a, a team of writers <laughs> but again it, it would become something that can be very yeah. Engaging and demanding. Mm. So, uh, yep. Was was the blog kind of a? I know you guys said it was just a way for you to sort of continue discussions with yourselves, but was it also kind of a way to start establishing this new field that you guys had? Because you know, you you guys were pioneers in this field. There's very little literature, probably even still, in neuroanthropology. So, how are you guys? dealing with that yeah i think it was uh, initially certainly it was great mm. at being able to get our ideas out there many many more people could access them immediately mm-hmm. whereas the turnaround on, on publications is is slow mm-hmm. um uh, you know particularly in anthropology we did, you know, it takes months um at a minimum to get your articles out whereas you just press publish <laughs> and your ideas are out there instant gratification yeah uh for other people as well i think that's what's interesting about it mm-hmm. they they also want to see what you're up to. Um, so in, in that sense, it was great at being able to circulate ideas, also to being able to recruit a group of, of anthropologists and other uh, people who were interested in this type of approach. So a lot of the people that we ended up working with were people who found us through the blog, and then they, for example, would write book chapters mm. um, for the Encultured Brain, um, so mm. the, the initial big publication on neuroanthropology. So it was both a vehicle for promoting our own ideas but also building a community um, that then led to so this group publication of you know, theoretical approaches as well as these case studies. Can you talk about your book for a little bit? Yeah, the Inculture so Brain? Um, The Inculture Brain came out uh, its first edition in 2002 and uh, and it really represented a culmination of lots of, of years of of sort of intellectual work, so not just the blog, but the you know different conferences, and finally a standalone conference, uh, out of which we sort of workshopped the the chapters. And it you know in one sense you could see this of having um, two parts to it. One is mostly Greg and I writing these sort of basic orientations to um, to how to think about and do neuroanthropology, and then we have a series of case studies. Um, and the case studies are pretty much evenly split between people who are tackling problems of human variation, um, 
and for example, Greg's work on balance um, or looking at how people learn skills. Um, and then the second set of publications are more people taking neuroanthropology and applying it to um, you know, problems uh, of human variation. So my work more on addiction or someone on PTSD. So, so it, we had both people who can use neuroanthropology to do very classical uh, culture anthropology types of stuff um, or classical um, biological anthropology stuff looking at how human variation plays out but then another group of people who take more the medical anthropology or some work with sort of development anthropology later to try to tackle problems uh, more applied problems mm-hmm. so have you have has the book had multiple editions yeah now? I mean it's it, it was you know, hardcover, it was reprinted, and now it's in a, in a soft cover. Mm. Uh, I still think it's probably the same edition, technically, by the way okay. they go by it. Um, sure. We didn't rewrite a new introduction or, or something like that. Mm. Um, but it still uh, it still sells. I still got got a, just recently got a little small check from MIT Press. Um, <laughs> so it's still, people are still buying it. And, uh, and interestingly, right after the book, we also put out a special issue of uh, in uh, Annals of Applied Anthropology on neuroanthropology as an applied approach. Hmm. And so I was really happy about that uh, because that really highlighted this commitment that I have to trying to both advance theoretical anthropology and applied anthropology together, that they're not separate things. Mm -hmm. Uh, So from my point of view, being able to have both come out close together and show that uh, you can be a great anthropologist and a great applied anthropologist. These are not separate things. They work together well. was uh, very, very satisfying. Hmm. Hmm. So if you're uh, an anthropology uh, um, professor somewhere and you're looking to build your syllabus, um, you know, consider, consider <laughs> the culture. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and make all your students buy yeah, it. As a, yeah, as I mean, a you guys always contact me. There are people who have taught um, – taught at the undergrad level and the graduate level around the country. I will be, I've taught at the grad level and I will teach it at the undergrad level, Brain and Culture, this coming fall. Hmm. Do you have then for listeners a, your stock kind of description of what the, what a brain enculturation might look like? Do you have an example? The stock. Uh, so we know something's going on with the culture and something's going right. on inside so, the brain, but what does that look like? So I'll go back to the, the easy way to sort of for me to explain is to go back to, to thinking about drug use, right? So mm-hmm. when we produce explanations of why people have problems with drug use, there's going to be biological explanations, and there's no doubt that drug use runs through the brain, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's no doubt that there are groups of people who use more than others, and it's not because there's something biologically different about most of those people. But rather, they, they learn to use their social circumstances, which sort of make them an in-group. Um, so we know, though this is not my preferred language, but people call us what subcultures of drug use. Um, and what neuroanthropology tries to say is both those, both those explanations are actually right. But the question is, how do you figure out to put, how to put them together? Um, and so we tackle that by saying... Um, the brain is our cultural organ, right? So we have hearts that you know, pump blood and you have lungs for air. For us, the brain is the organ that runs culture. Um, but it 
the brain is not separable from the body and the environment. This is one of the big sort of misconceptions is it's just sort of this you know, psychological algorithms that run there. No, it really, really runs through your body. You have a nervous system through your entire body, not just your brain. Um, mm. One of the marvelous things that's been shown by modern neuroscience is is if you get sensory inputs into the brain, your brain deals with them and then can change. Your brain's more um, has more neuroplasticity than originally thought, which would have to be to sort of really account for some of the cultural variation we see around mm. the world that we studied as anthropologists. Um, but to be able to account for that cultural variation, we, uh, Greg and I argue it's it's important to understand how the brain does that, um, mm. that it's not just the culture on its own, sort of this relativistic system of symbols, but that the way things become embodied um, and the way we learn and the way habitus actually becomes a habitus rather than just something that magically appears, mm. these are really important empirical questions. So uh, I guess to get back to your nutshell, it's it's the recognition that you know there's the individual, there's the environment, but the interface we need to do much better on the interface between individuals and environments. And um, more than anything, I think that's the space that neuroanthropology tries to you know, conceptualize and operationalize in ways that a lot of other approaches don't. They just sort of take it for granted, for example, from culture anthropology that uh, there's embodiment, but they don't really talk about the actual body. They sort of say they get up to that close. Or from the physiological side, they'll recognize the environment you know, can change sensory inputs, but they don't really think about, well, if you shape the environment of, for for example, for rats, um, the cage itself shapes so much of what they do, not mm-hmm. just the drugs they're giving them. And that's been shown by good animal research. So mm-hmm. um, it's for us, it's, I think, more and more is trying to figure out how to have an anthropologically informed approach to that intersection between the individual and the environment. So so to try and kind of like visualize that is so if we were to have like a like a like a visual model of what neuroanthropology is uh, or where it we th- or at least the way I understand it, the way it should be is um if we kind of visualize a Venn diagram and you know anthropology is one circle and neuroscience is one circle and the and the the point where they connect would be the neuroanthropology yeah i mean that go back to the classic statement of it mm-hmm. um uh You know, I'd probably, I mean, to be even simpler, you could say, you know, one one diagram's the brain, the other diagram's the culture, mm. where those overlap in the Venn diagram, if you put them together, that's where neuroanthropology, mm. as well as allied disciplines like cultural neuroscience, mm. uh, live. What it, where it gets complicated is, you know, there's not just one brain and not just one culture. There's lots of different um, types of human variation uh, in both realms. Mm. So, mm. Um, so each of those could play out in sort of really different combination, and that's fun. Mm. I kind of wanted to to steer the conversation in a different direction real fast. Um, Going back to you were talking about, like, public discourse and things with your your blog and, um, I guess, engaging in what I would define as public anthropology, essentially. Um, Why why don't you think there's more of that going on with not, not only anthropology, but anthropology professors, you know, because I, I don't, I don't see very many people, I guess, using blogs or other sorts mm-hmm. of media to kind of do those short, short little posts and things like that instead of just solely academic papers. I, 
I think one one important reason is it's it's hard to get um, credit, academic credit for mm. that type of work. Mm. Um, and so one of the things that I've tried to do in my own career is to you know help both in the departments I've been in as well as say at the level of the American Anthropological Association, you know produce standards that can encompass the range of academic outputs. Mm. Um, someone who works online and does stuff out in public is putting as much intellectual effort into that um, as someone who's you know working in a lab. I don't really see the difference. They're, they're, they're highly engaged. They're applying ideas. They're often doing sophisticated intellectual work. Um, so that, for me, is one of the main things is just making sure that there's a system set up that to, to credit this type of engagement. And uh, I, on the other hand, I, I just see that, you know, a lot of people who come into academia just are in love with ideas and want to pursue that. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't become journalists or they didn't become radio person. I, I came from a little bit of a different background. I actually worked as a freelance journalist when I was in Colombia. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was, I think, an easier step for me to, mm -hmm. to take. Uh, but I, I, I do see a really urgent need for people to try to do more of this. You know, one, one still to this day, one, one main reason why I've done a lot of the online stuff I've done is, is uh, when I was first teaching, I would, you know, start referencing ideas and have them look up stuff. And that's even more so today. But at, at that point, that was, you know, as Google was coming in, they were turning to Google first. And I was suddenly like, if anthropology isn't online and on Google, they won't find it. It won't exist for them. Mm -hmm. and, um, mm -hmm. and so for me, it became really important to try to get anthropology out there so that people could access these ideas um, and not just hide away in departments. Uh, and, and other projects like the Medical Anthropology Wiki have done similar sorts of things um, to try to get stuff out online that we often you know, hide away in books in a, and that's th not really that different. It's the same material. It's the same words, citations. It's just in a different medium. Mm -hmm. It's more accessible. Yeah. A, would you yeah. say part of it's just the lack of referee? Like if you wanted to go and, and put some citations and go in depth with a community because they asked you a question, there's no three reviewers who are going to take six weeks to get to read your stuff and get you – you know what I mean? That mm -hmm. I agree. I think that's part of it. Um, it. You know, hopefully that's – I think that's a solvable problem um, going forward in, in terms of, you know, if you can put those works in places where it can be stored um, and have it recognized um, and, you know, sort of labeled as being part of, a, of an academic discipline, mm -hmm. then the, the bar is lower for it, for it counting. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm, you know, I'm reasonably confident going forward that, um, things will start to move in the direction where where we can archive more of this type right. of material and um, and also have change criteria which recognizes a wider range of academic outputs. Mm. It's interesting because you see the demand for it with like people like Sam Harris or what's his name, uh, Jordan Peterson has been yeah. super famous yep. lately just running around talking his ideas. Whether you agree with any of these people or not, it, there's obviously an audience who want 
what ends up being very scientific discussions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I think, um, I mean, radio, I think uh, YouTube is, yeah, is, is something that um, academics should think about embracing more, given how much success people like that have had. Yeah. Um, some of the debate formats, I, I can't remember the guy's name, but you know, one guy who goes on, on campus and gets into big debates with students. Um, uh, and, and it's, it's fun to watch. Yeah. Um, but it's not academics sitting down to, to, to have that kind of debate, even though we often do really similar things in class. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, teaching is our way, is our biggest public impact. But a lot of what we do in teaching translates really well to online engagement. It's still engaging with an audience of people who don't necessarily know as much as you and you want to reach them. Um, similarly, some of the debates we do and some of the things that you see these more popular um, online personalities or media personalities doing, I, th- you know, I think academics can do some of that same stuff. We do it a lot already in yeah. um, every day. Yeah. You think some of the reason why there's not more of it is that, I guess, putting yourself out there and taking a solid stance makes some people feel uncomfortable? Yeah, it can be scary. Yeah, because, yeah. like, if you're, if you're online, then you're, I mean... Uh, yeah, I mean you're out there, right? So yeah, if you're accessible, someone can say something back to you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Then you're open to yeah. to critique, I guess. Uh, just turn the comments off. <laughs> <laughs> then everyone loves your stuff in your mind. Yeah. <laughs> that works. Problem solved. There we go. Okay, um, so we're gonna have to wrap up the conversation. Um, so thank you, Dr. Lindy, for coming to talk to us. You're welcome. Um, we really appreciate it. Um, as we actually wrap up the show, this is our last month of Anthro Alert. Um, so we appreciate you um, coming in and volunteering your time. So that's all we have for this week. Thank you for listening, and we will be back next week. Stay tuned. <laughs>